so we literally define matrimonial asset as asset that you acquire after marriage, yes. right? Usually, right? So mm. the husband will naturally assume that if he acquired a property, like a private property in his own name before mm. the marriage, then that shouldn't be a part of the matrimonial asset. Yes. So he'll submit his list and then he'll be very unpleasantly surprised when his ex-wife's lawyer sends him like, a, okay, like, you need to include this crap. You're listening to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast, the show where personal finance is about the person, not just the numbers. Here on BFF, we talk about how to make money your best friend so that you can have the freedom to make the most out of life. We go through the honest discussions about money so that you don't need to make the same mistakes. We demystify jargon so that no one can smoke you with complicated acronyms. After all, money's greatest value is to give us control over our time, which is truly our greatest asset. I'm your host, Junus Yu. Hey guys, and welcome back to the BFF Podcast. And today we have back with us again, Luke from the Money Maverick Academy. Hello, Luke. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. So today we are going to be talking about, I guess, a heavier topic, which is getting divorced. <laughs> it is not a it is not the best topic because we are just talking about your upcoming wedding proposal. Yeah. But you know, I think you know it's still a fact of life and I think that no doubt it is a very emotionally daunting process for couples, but at the same time it is also a financially daunting process and I think that mm. it would be good for us to dedicate an episode for people who might be thinking about this. Because clearly, if we look at the statistics, there are people who are getting divorced. But, you know, from your worldview, right, how often have you dealt with such cases? In my career so far, I've only, I've dealt but with about three personally. I wouldn't mm. say dealt as much as I would be involved in some capacity. And I have studied with my team also, like dozens of case studies. Uh, frankly, it's a pretty fun topic for me uh, because I get to stay like outside of the entire situation so mm-hmm. I can just be like okay this thing will happen that thing will happen uh, mm-hmm. so I actually do enjoy talking about it the interesting thing to me or one of the things that started standing out when I first experienced it is that women initiate the majority of devils ah interesting I saw an article on that mm. and yes it's right that women initiate it but one of the aspects that I thought was new to me Mm. was the reason for financial independence. You know, where traditionally, let's say, a woman would choose to stay in a marriage because maybe she was financially dependent on her husband. But then now that she has her own earning power and let's say she now has the Mm. ability to just move out and not deal with whatever she doesn't want to deal with. That's true. Mm. I mean, that's certainly a factor towards the increasing rate of divorce in Singapore. Mm. The women in America initiate about 85% of the divorces, which is really a lot. Mm. Uh, So I think that it really kind of scales up proportionally as a first world country. For Singapore, partly because maybe that's the Asian factor. I don't necessarily think that we're less first world than the US necessarily, but maybe the Asian factor. So our divorce, uh, the women initiate 65% of the divorces here as according Mm -hmm. to the 2021 uh, registered marriage statistics. Yep. For me, in relation to why I brought it up, it's because usually it's the the men which will ask me for help. Like, I, I very rarely get to deal with a woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I guess, statistically we are saying if it's 65%, it, it is why it is, I guess. Mm. 
But also, you know, when it comes to the issue of uh, marriage, so let's go into the the fees, right? Like sure. the cost, just the cost of a divorce alone is upwards of a thousand five hundred dollars, um, just for the legal procedural fees. So we're not trying to get into the legal jargon here, but I'm just kind of mm. like putting out what the cost is because it's you know something that was new to me, and I was like literally researching it because huh? I'm not married or anything like sure. that. I haven't yeah. had to deal with like what the cost of a divorce is, let alone what the cost of a, a marriage is. But but that cost also varies according to whether or not that divorce is contested or yep. not. Aside from that, I think one thing that people will need to consider is how are the matrimonial assets being divided and, and what do you feel are steps that couples can take to make sure that process is smoother? Well, I mean, first to disclaim, I'm not a lawyer, right? Mm. So lawyers are the ones who typically charge fees in a situation. And for my profession, I primarily assist using whether it's estate or financial planning. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I may not be clear of the specific legal jargon or fees, but I'll just try to focus on the financial aspects. Basically, uh, contested is generally on the basis that, you know, like both parties do not agree to divorce for a reason or the proportion of that divorce. So what will happen is that you'll get lawyers involved and that's yes. when it becomes extreme extremely, extremely expensive for mm -hmm. the most part. Uh, while comparatively, uh, just the distribution of assets, uh, the cost of time, probably if you have a very amicable divorce, is definitely not, it's usually, okay, it's usually under a five-figure sum. Mm. Uh, so that's something that can be wrapped up pretty mm -hmm. nicely. Mm -hmm. um, I think in terms of the question on how matrimonial assets are divided, I mean, I mean, firstly, matrimonial assets, there are several ways you can categorize what a, a matrimonial asset is, yep. but basically it's uh, assets that are usually accumulated after, after the marriage. After the marriage, yeah. right? Mm. But and even that, that could be quite grey. Oh yeah, uh, which is which is actually why I like talking about this topic so much because <laughs> it's it's so tricky. So so for. I mean, most assets would come into what I like to call white or grey areas. So mm. white areas are basically where the law is very clear on them and you don't really have much. You don't really have something you get to say about it except for how the court decides on the proportion. It means that if the court decides 60-40, then 60-40, right? Mm -hmm. And then by law, like that's it. Not, not very much you can do about it. Yes. Uh, while comparatively grey is where you see most of the areas that get contested. Le. And so the problem that we get to see a lot financially, or is why it's so hard to answer this question in that sense is because most people have the wrong idea of what they think matrimonial assets are because one law will conflict with the other and then they don't know which ones supersede which ones. What yeah. is an example of that? First of all, like what is the wrong idea of what counts as a matrimonial asset? And and then secondly, like why would they think so differently about it? Like can you give us a case? Uh, okay, so I mean fun one, or I would say it's typical in the sense that it's been experienced twice at this point. Mm -hmm. And out of three that's a lot already. Mm. Um so, <laughs> so usually if you acquire a property before marriage, right? Mm -hmm. And so we literally define matrimonial asset as asset that you acquire after marriage, yes. right? Usually, right? So mm. the husband will naturally assume that if he acquired a property like a private property in its own name before mm. the marriage then that shouldn't be a part of the matrimonial asset yes like it's almost a, kind of a dirt statement and so he will probably go into the divorce thinking that this is not going to be a part of the list that is going to be contested or submitted so he'll submit his cute little list and then he'll be very unpleasantly surprised when his ex-wife's lawyer sends him like a, okay like you need to include this crap which and is then, I mean the property is a huge one yeah it's humongous yes. and it's often one of the key assets that gets up for grabs and part of the reason why she was able to put it up like as, as a matrimonial asset is because if she moves into the house there and she stays there for a couple of years uh, mm -hmm. it's considered like a matrimonial home yeah. mm. so is there like a okay this person has lived in this house for a year and thus for that reason 
the property would be considered a metromoyal asset? Well, like, what is actually the definition? It's hard because usually there's like it's it can be judgment calls, right? Because it mm. depends on how much you indirectly contribute to the household after you moved in. But mm-hmm. the ones where you see uh, a lot of success is three years or longer. Mm. Yeah, so at least three years, then you kind of see that there's almost nothing that the man in this particular case study could do about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they have children there, uh, it is is basically like a, a gone case law. like he would have to submit that as an asset I've never seen a case study where that was not the case law. could mm. be wrong still like I mentioned not a lawyer but uh, almost certainly uh, there's not been a single case study where I've seen that once you raise children in that home that it's not mat- a matrimonial home right? Right. and so that suddenly goes from not a matrimonial asset to a, a matrimonial, matrimonial asset. asset and then mm. yeah you could lose half the house mm. yeah or more often what happens is that after the division of assets someone will pay off the other half of that split and then the one of them will stay in the house the other one will, will move out somewhere la, mm. with a lot more money mm-hmm. yeah so quite brutal I think that a lot of people make these kinds of I wouldn't say they make decisions on a divorce necessarily because if you want to prevent yourself from divorcing you have to provide counter evidence as to why you should not get divorced Yeah, because mm-hmm. normally what will happen is that let's say if you and I are getting divorced for example and you say that I want to divorce and you go and file it and then I say well I, I don't care we're not getting divorced and then mm-hmm. you have to go and submit proof as to why we should get divorced Right. and pretty likely it will be almost anything will be accepted for the most part so I have to almost of- anything will be accepted <laughs> So, so let's say if I if if we were married, we're we getting divorced, and then like you you're saying you don't want to get divorced, I want to, sure. and then I submit evidence of like I cannot stand his snoring, for example, and then I, I, I okay okay put that, that, that's my mistake I misspoke. Although you you could there was a case study where text messages of the husband's phone were mm-hmm. submitted mm-hmm. where like he was like flirting with somebody else, mm-hmm. and it was quite like relatively harmless. I would say for I mean I don't think any flirting outside of your marriage is good, but in a sense that it's not like he was like sleeping around or kissing her or anything, right? Mm-hmm. And so. So that was already submitted as okay, like like we should get divorced, right? And mm-hmm. and then the the lawyer who looked at that evidence was like, okay, I guess we'll we'll go ahead and push your husband to get divorced, right? Because right. A, a lawyer understands the law a lot better, and and he understands how a judge will probably rule, and so he's not gonna just accept stuff anyhow, like snoring for the most part. But <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but but even when I say it, almost anything goes like that, that seemed pretty small to me. Mm. Uh, I think hopefully a lot of people listening to this will agree and so yeah you know like that's that suddenly makes uh that situation up for grabs so how yeah. did that play out in that case that you mentioned where the, the evidence that was being submitted was like flirtatious messages to somebody i mean was was the hope for how to get a bigger percentage i mean it obviously would affect the judge's decision to some degree but i don't think that was the main factor it's just mm. that she really wanted to get divorced right. uh, and from what i could tell from the case study because that was the most interesting part but subsequently it kind of went in a somewhat of a standard way so so mm-hmm. it was more of like a placeholder just to make sure that the case could kind of stay open mm. or to kind of lead with that while she made time to provide a, like a lot more evidence as to why they should get divorced or mm-hmm. like maybe if like he's uh, neglecting like mortgage payments or things like that like those mm. are a lot more serious and so that's where the grounds for divorce become a lot clearer mm-hmm. yeah it, it kind of became a little boring after that point and so they had a divorce and like that was it like okay <laughs> right do you think there's any benefit in uh, keeping a clear paper trail of oh, yeah. like um, family <laughs> expenses for example like who's contributing who is spending most, most of it <laughs> do you think that do you think that that's actually a useful thing to have uh, I mean in financial planning circles uh, we do have certain financial consultants which like to specialize in some of these areas a bit more 
and they do kind of encourage people to keep a paper trail. Like if you plot out your divorce well enough for like maybe a two or three years, you plot out your yeah, divorce. Yeah, yeah, and then like you just keep in, uh, like all this stuff, and then like you right. just submit in one go. Like mm-hmm. you'll probably get a lot, a lot more out of the divorce, right? And some consultants do actually have like structure like they have like word documents and excel documents that advise people really really specifically on how to get divorced in the most positive manner uh, i try not to get into that because it really kind of pushes the boundaries of what you can do for license you know mm-hmm. uh, but, I see. but they do kind of like especially if that's like kind of your main clientele because obviously there's a lot of financial aspects where a consultant can positively contribute to all of this and so they make it a point to understand the negative repercussions so they know how to solve those problems with more detail. Yeah. Mm. yeah, because the way I see it is uh, a couple is going through a divorce process, it certainly is emotionally taxing Yeah, to deal with the financial ramifications or kind of to have a conversation of like how much were we both contributing or like what would be fair to both parties mm. when, when, when it's already an emotionally distressing situation, it's much harder to have those conversations. Technically, uh, even in consultancy, uh, you don't actually deal with the situation mm. directly. So only the people involved will. Uh, but when you read the case studies, you always see that that contributes tremendously towards the judge's decision in relation to distribution. Like, there's never been a case where it wasn't very much skewed, like, where the judge will... Because usually, like, in a case study, it's, like, a lot of pages. Mm -hmm. But when they... He, when he reads out his judgment, like he'll always say that you know, like uh, on, on the number of factors which he used to make the decision, right? And the recurring factors always in relation to how effectively someone had a paper trail, as well as the accuracy of the numbers. Mm. Right? Even today, actually, today there was an article on divorce, very fun article. It's called "When Dad Tries to Reclaim Son's One Point Five Million Dollar Condo," <laughs> and so the dad had a rough time with the divorce, and he thought for whatever reason that it would be a good idea to tell the judge that he should get his. Condo condo back because they were trying to duck ABSD. Okay. Like, which yeah. is a really stupid thing to do because mm. obviously if you tell a judge this, uh, you are just admitting that you broke the law, right? Exactly. It's opening, another can, <laughs> it's opening another can of worms, essentially. Yeah, but one of the reasons why the idea was rejected, so firstly, of course, the judge was kind enough, in my opinion, to reject the premise because obviously the guy would go to jail if, if you accepted that premise anyway, mm-hmm. right? But he also didn't reject it because the guy failed to provide an accurate number on how much ABSD he was trying to duck. Right. You see, so that there's no idea there in that sense la, mm. right um, the specifically the judgment was part of the judgment is because the number was inaccurate mm-hmm. right and so that's also a factor it means that not only do you have to have a paper trail but it has to be really accurate like it can't be too generic right. like you have to like have very specific numbers it helps if you save those cute little three six month bank statements that those e-bank statements that you have rather than having to ask the bank for it directly which also does happen like people who don't save those they have to ask the bank okay can you trail back my bank account stuff for my transactions like two years three years and that's hard for them it's really hard for them mm. so it's better you just do it yourself mm. and and what are the top three takeaways for people who unfortunately might be considering something like that <laughs> I can't imagine it's going to be a large proportion of people I hope but then you know what are the top three takeaways I mean divorce is moving up uh, in Singapore to almost one in three mm-hmm. although there are, it's not a very accurate statistic because there, there are some areas as to why it's skewed which maybe we can talk about if we have time Um, but on the top three takeaways my ones la, personally based on my experience uh, consulting is firstly it's pretty important to accurately identify what kind of losses that you're going to experience mm-hmm. because most people wildly underestimate 
the financial losses that you experience in the divorce that means that especially when they think that okay I'm going to be able to fall back on this asset or that asset after I get divorced and then it turns out that it's up for grabs and so you lose a big chunk of it right mm. you know and so that's partly why I do get to have a job in that sense right. because most people can't do that very well um, they also don't account for the psychological damage so for example the Asian financial crisis people who deal only with like a 20 or 25% loss I mean it's not small but it's certainly not a full thing but it's it's the effect of not being able to deal with that that leaves them susceptible to making a negative cycle of poor financial decisions mm-hmm. so you have to kind of gauge like what you will do or how much time you'll take to kind of recover from this you know you shouldn't expect that life will get back to normal just because you're able to walk away with the money that you want in right. a divorce mm. yeah I think the second thing is also that it's important to address your estate planning post-divorce because you could lose a lot more money in the future. Uh, we didn't talk about this too much, but yeah. frankly, uh, that's one of my priorities in terms of the way I conduct my job, I guess, because one of the recurring case studies that we do get to see is that people don't know that divorce doesn't revoke nominations. Yeah, it means basically any wills or nominations that you made during your time of marriage is still valid even after you get divorced. Mm-hmm. That's a fun one because people would kind of assume that it would. Uh, go away with, with yeah, yeah. the separation, right? Like to them, they would think it should be null and void, but mm. uh, that's not really the case right so even though the law in Singapore is relatively intelligent means that just because your nominations were there and then they're outdated in some sense and so judges will usually make pretty good decisions based on their analysis of the whole situation but it will cost the actual beneficiaries that you want a lot more money to go and sort that all out Mm. right and time Mm. and so the other common areas that we get to see is that let's say if you and I are married and we have two young children for example right Mm -hmm. and then we get divorced what typically would happen is that if I die because we're formally divorced, my money will go to my kids. Right. Right? And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm so smart, right? Because I made sure I didn't have any money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if the kids are under 21, um, it goes into a trust held by mm. the government, you know. And so who is usually the trustee or who can have access to basically requesting money from the trustees, usually the, the legal guardian or the, the surviving parent, right? And mm-hmm. it's not always very easy to gauge how they'll use that money. And so you can find that your children will have little to nothing when they, they get out. Loud. Then they would probably have to sue or they may not even realize that they lost anything. Right. You know? yeah, and so that, that's a well. pretty brutal situation where if you don't figure out your estate planning after your divorce, mm-hmm. that a lot of little careless mistakes where you can just lose a lot more money in the future, even if you think that you've kind of gotten out of the divorce relatively unscathed. So mm. that's a pretty big one. Um, and then I guess the last takeaway is about the financial repercussions on your children and parents. So I did mention the children one already, but parents tend to take a pretty big brunt of it because when you get married and you have children, what happens is that interstate succession doesn't usually leave room for your parents already. Yeah, yeah. But okay. for the most part, joint tenancy outside of marriage is not as effective as joint tenancy during marriage, mm. uh, in marriage, mm. right? Or if your joint tenancy with your wife compared to joint tenancy with your parents. So usually uh, those assets are up for grabs. I think maybe a slightly better example would probably be because there's a huge rising cost of living in Singapore. And so we get to see increasingly on the ground that parents are helping out their children yes uh, partly because they also want their children out of the house a little earlier and the children also complain that they want to be out of the house a little earlier mm. but uh so yeah, sometimes the parents will lend money off book to their children to go and do stuff like your down payment etc and for then, a property yeah and then if they example. die there's no there's no real track record or mm. way to kind of be able to prove that 
Because even if you had the track record of the transaction, the judge has to decide as to whether or not uh, it was intended for like the house or like whether the, the wife so-called gets to keep it. Then he mm-hmm. also has to consider the repercussion if he doesn't let the surviving uh, wife keep it because obviously she wouldn't have a house, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. So that creates a lot of conflict and typically it's not very normal for people to say they have a great relationship with their in-laws in my opinion I'm not so sure maybe I'm just tossing out my opinion out there but yes. I've not really seen this for <laughs> I've not really seen this in my clientele or my case studies I think there certainly so. are such cases but again I think it differs very much from a case by case basis right and that's the, that's the reason why um, mm. I guess the judge is there to look at all the nuances of the situation. Yeah, but I mean, for the most part, you it's at least basically when it comes to this takeaway, the general idea is to at least be as aware of it as possible. Just because the judge was sorted out doesn't mean that it won't cost a tremendous amount of additional time and money. Yes, right? For true. every particular incident or every additional asset that you're fighting over, like that's uh, quite a bit in, in legal fees or especially depending on how much time you want to spend on that particular asset. So... Mm. Yeah, so yeah, it's really important for people to realize that your children, your parents, even after your divorce is over, all those things like need to be seriously considered from a financial perspective and you should really speak uh, with somebody who can kind of help you uh, nail all of that properly. Yeah. Mm, I think that's something that you know I also didn't think about because I would naturally think that that goes away. But for people who want to find out more, like kind of like talk to you about you know this matter, where should they go and find you? Well, you can Google uh, Luke Ho, and then you'll find that I have a landing page that is lukeho-investments.com. Uh, it's a little bit outdated because of the name there. But for the most uh-huh. part, uh, my team and I do do quite extensive estate planning. Mm. Uh, it is generally, it is in our experience, the financial aftermath of divorce rather than even the divorce itself mm-hmm. uh, that causes a lot of financial stress and it leads to very very poor decision making so it can be good to kind of speak with someone on helping to understand firstly what the extent of the damage will be and subsequently how you can cope with it mm. yeah so we'll definitely be also suggesting various things like whether or not there are certain assets that are more likely to be protected in the future means that if you want to get married again what assets that you can invest in now that are less likely to be up for grabs in the future as well and uh, how to stretch some of your assets post-divorce I think that my team recently did passive income structure for someone being able to knock off his alimony Mm -hmm. so that was a a fun way to kind of get him on board because he didn't seem very interested in anything else until we brought up that is one way to kind of stretch out uh, his money compared to him forking out of his salary every month Mm. yeah so for the most part it's also good to optimize your overall expenses uh, because generally when you're in a relationship you're you're dealing with expenses like, like it's a combined effort to pay off stuff but yep. you may find that you're taking on a lot more after you're by yourself you know and so it's always good to have a, a review on that oh yeah that's that's true as well because you don't have someone to share those expenses with yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think there's a lot of considerations to be had. And then like maybe we can do a further podcast on that. I think there's there's a lot of things that we didn't get to cover today, but let's see. Cool. But thanks so much for coming on again. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcasts at melisten.sg or at my Instagram at misfitfi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on MeListen or Apple Podcasts or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from MediaCorp and recorded at Scape Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu, with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time.